Well, good afternoon. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to continue our teaching through the book of Revelation. I titled this sermon, How to Be on the Right Side of History, because who wants to be on the wrong side of history? That's one of the litmus tests nowadays when a current issue arises, is the, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? And that's what this section in this chapter is inviting us to ask. Are we on the right side of history or not? See, I think it's inborn in us that we would prefer to not be losers. You know, I am a multi-generational Pittsburgh Steelers fan, right? And I was watching football with my son recently, and the Steelers were playing, and then they were losing, and he said, Dad, I'm cheering for the other team now. (laughs) And I thought, I've begun to fail as a parent. You know, this is, come on, we got to stick through it. You know, but there's something in us. Nobody ever taught him, hey, when the team starts losing, you start cheering for the other team. You get on the bandwagon. You don't have to be taught to be a bandwagoner. It's kind of part of our human deal. And I think that this text, amongst others, is inviting people to ask yourselves, okay, if we know where history is headed, if we know the end of time, if we know where things are going, are we positioning ourselves correctly to make that judgment correct? correctly or not. Because like we just read, or like Bruce just read for us in Revelation 19, that God makes a bird feeder out of his enemies. And the birds are gorged on the flesh of his enemies. And so it's a totally valid thing to say, like, how could that not happen to me? That's, I think, a lot of what this imagery in Revelation is trying to make us do, is to say, how could that not happen to me? And I'm gonna teach, like, the back half of Revelation 19 and all of Revelation 20. Next week, we're gonna get to the new heavens, new earth, a positive part of the book. It ends. But today, we're gonna talk about how do you get, what's the last battle, the last thing that is conquered, and we're going to see the culmination of the good versus evil fight here in this text. Now, I'm going to teach what I think is historically been some of the most divided text as far as history of interpretation the last 2,000 years. And one of my nervousness points, or my, my insecurity in teaching this, is I don't want any of us to walk out of here I think he's trying to encourage the people of God and specifically I think he's writing this in such a way that we're meant to see the end of history as a fulfillment of Psalm 23. Now here's what I mean by this. I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 23 and I'm going to show you where this goes in this uh, in this book. So Psalm 23, uh, you're, it's pretty familiar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. All of this is calm down language, right? It's blood pressure drop, heart rate drop language. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In Revelation 19, we see him talking about that he's ruling the nations with a rod. 
that with his rod he is beating back the evil ones. Revelation 19:15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That Psalm 23 talks about how the rod of God is meant to comfort his people because he's beating back those who destroy. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm uh, Revelation 19 is all about this feast right before they go off to battle. That it's not just a marriage supper, but it's actually a pre-warfare gorge fest so that the body gets ready to go and fight. And then it goes on to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so with Psalm 23 as our backdrop as we read Revelation 19 and 20, I want us to see that this text is predominantly meant to quiet our hearts, calm our bodies, and help us go, if I trust in Jesus, then I'm on the right side of history. And so what we're gonna actually see here is that we would fear not the fire, uh, fear not the fight, and fear not the feast. So let me pray, and then we'll kind of walk through this text backwards. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that your spirit... Uh, as you move John, that you'd also move us, that we'd be sobered uh, and uh, energized and that uh, the fear of turning out on the wrong side of history would be uh, stomped out of us as we look at this text. In your name we pray, amen. So a big part of this text, uh, especially towards the end of Revelation 20, is all about fire, this fire that is burning. We see it all throughout Revelation 20 in a couple of different ways. Uh, it talks about how uh, the second death, uh, especially that's uh, in Revelation 20 verse uh, nine, it says that there's these enemies of God that march over a broad plain and then comes down from heaven, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Likewise, we see that there are um, the two enemies of God who were the beast and the, uh, Satan who uh, animates him. In Revelation 19, th- these two are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Uh, towards the end of 20, it talks about this again. It says that death and Hades gave up those who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have lake of fire, fire calling from heaven, sulfur burning, fire, fire. Um, and the question, like, the, that we get a lot of times is like, is this fire of judgment? Is this literal or is this metaphorical? And that's a fair question. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, a guy named N.T. Wright, he was in a group of like secular uh, liberals and he believes in the Bible's authority and they're asking him, now Professor uh, Wright, are, are you, uh, do you think that the fire described in the fire of hell is literal or metaphorical? And he said, oh, certainly, well, he, he didn't say it like this because he has a British accent. And when you have a British accent, it just it sounds way more polished, you know? So he says, oh, it's certainly metaphorical. And the whole room was like, oh. And he said, for something much worse than fire, <laughs> the wrath of God. <gasps> it's like fire is the closest picture we have of the Holy One of Israel burning hot against sin. Like we know fire touch hot. We know like the whole thrust of this, whether it's literal or metaphorical, doesn't totally matter because the whole emphasis is you don't want to be there. Not interested, hard pass, no thanks, don't want to be there. That's just like if you walk into a movie theater and you yell, fire! 
Two things have to happen. One, you have to decide if the person yelling fire is nuts or not. And two, then you have to decide, do I need to get out of this building or not? Right, but you have to do both of those things. And John is yelling fire and we have to decide, is he nuts or should we listen to him and try to get out of Babylon? That's the whole, whole idea here. And so John's yelling fire, fire's coming and we're meant to be provoked to decide. So you can hear a lot of parts of the Bible and go, mm, no, I'm just gonna, no thanks. But you can't hear someone yelling fire and not have to decide, believe them or don't believe them. And that's part of the point here is it's forcing a choice. You have to decide the fire's coming or decide it's not. And what do you do about it? And so here's what it says is, those whose name was in the book of life were not thrown into the lake of fire. So how do you get your name in the book of life? Well, Revelation 3 talks about the one who conquers. And in that, that section, that's about those who trust in and believe in Jesus. Earlier in this text, it says that blessed are the one who shares in the first resurrection. I'm gonna tell you later that I think the first resurrection is the resurrection of a new heart. You were dead and now you're alive. That's why we baptize people. You've gone from death to life, from disbelief to belief. And so if you believe in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, it says here that over such people, the second death has no power. And you'll reign with him for a thousand years. So this idea that if you believe in Jesus, then your name's in the book of life, then you don't need to be worried about the second death, which is the eternal placement in the lake of fire. That is the reason that the people of God don't need to fear the fire. Because Jesus comes, it says in Revelation 19, in a robe, Revelation 19, 13, he's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, that is his own blood, the name is which? The word of God. That because of the blood of Jesus, because Christ has cleansed us, because he's put white linen on us, we are cleansed righteous. We don't need to fear the fire at the end of history. And there is no concern that where you're headed will ultimately lead to your ultimate suffering. Now this is part of following Jesus, is recognizing that my ultimate destination is certain, but that doesn't mean that the getting there process won't be tremendously difficult or painful. Like your next week might be really tough. Your this week might be really tough. And I promise you that uh, Jesus is involved and he's caring for you and he's walking with you. But the other thing you need to know with certainty is that your ultimate, final, eternal destination is going to be not worth comparing. Paul says this in Romans chapter nine, that the glory that will be revealed to us are not worth comparing to the present sufferings. Not minimizing current sufferings, but maximizing eternal glory with our names written in the book of life. Fear not the fire. The next piece is fear not the fight. There's two battles described here. I think they're actually referencing the same battle from two different angles. And they are the most anticlimactic battles you'll ever hear about. Like you think about watching Lord of the Rings and it's like the two armies, like thousands versus thousands and they clash and there's like these fight scenes that last 40 minutes. That's not what happens here. So I'm gonna show you these two battles. So the first one is from the text that Bruce read, Revelation 19, 17 and following. It says that I saw the beast in 19 and the kings of the earth with all their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse. That is Jesus on his leg is written king of kings and lord of lords and against his army and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet in its presence had done the signs by which deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image these two that is the beast and the false prophet were then thrown to the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest verse 21 says were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse 
Now, you just can imagine, like there's, like, I think it's us in white robes and white horses, all mounted up with swords, riding after Jesus into battle. And then all of a sudden, the battle's about to go down, and Jesus just goes, and I feel like there's like a moment where you're gonna be like, I got dressed up for this, man. I just, okay, I'll just go put on my sweatpants again. You know, like, why did I get all girded up for this non-battle? And he just, like Thanos, like, it's not a close fight. It doesn't like come down to the last moment. It's just absolute Thanos style, boom. Next one we see is uh, at the end of the thousand years, it says they'll come and deceive the nations, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that is the king and the false priest, to gather for battle. And their number, there's the enemies of God, I'm reading uh, 20 verse eight. Their number is like the sand of the sea. That is a lot of enemies. And they marched up over a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. God's people are surrounded by an army larger than the, as large as the sand of the sea. Then it says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Anticlimactic. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. These are anticlimactic fights at the end of history. We think there's gonna be like this massive struggle at the end of time and it's just gonna be God the Almighty, the powerful, poof. No sweat. Like my, my son now is doing like the, who would win in a fight, Dad? Superman or Iron Man? And it's like, oh, you know, tough question, Jay. How sunny is it, you know? How, how, much, how much energy is Superman absorbing, you know? And it does, this, does you know, I don't know, the Iron Man guy, he might have kryptonite, you know? It could be a, it could be a tough thing, you know? And then, but then he'll ask, okay, who could win in a fight? Superman or God? I'm like, oh, that's a good question. But I think God could just wink and Superman would just poof. And Jay's like, that's so, so much power. I'm like, yeah, this is, it is not going to be difficult for God to just overcome his enemies. No struggle, no sword fighting, no test of skill and endurance. Just the Lord Almighty vanquishing his enemies we don't need to be worried about that fight. See, as our anxiety ratchets up, the more and more news we watch, the more and more current events we consume, the more it feels like there's this struggle between good and evil and and there's a heresy for that. It's called Manichaeism. It's the belief that good and evil are eternally fighting. That's not the Christian teaching. The Christian teaching is that God controls world history and for some reason that we don't totally understand, he is writing a complicated layered story. (laughs) But he's writing the story and he's in control of it. And Satan will beg for mercy and it'll be too late as the book of Job teaches. We don't need to fear that fight. Now here's a part in the middle of these fights that I think you kind of zoom in, look at the fight, zoom out, give the big picture, that Revelation 20 is the part that's been like pretty divisive throughout church history. And so I'm gonna go at least a notch 
nerdy with you all, and you're all gonna like it. No, it's just, uh, you'll be okay, I promise you. Like, so you've heard boringer teachers than me, you can bear with me, we'll, we'll be fine. And so I wanna read the text and explain that there are three orthodox views of this, um, and then uh, we'll go from there. So Revelation 20, it says, and then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit or the abyss in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into that pit and shut and sealed it so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So that phrase, thousand years, is like the centerpiece of this uh, interpretation controversy, right? So millennium is a thousand years. So I'm going to talk about the, the views of the millennium. What are the views of the millennial kingdom? And there's basically three views. There's post-mill, which is described in this picture. So the church age is the time from the resurrection of Christ. Then the post-millennial view is that then the church, because of, like, this is a decidedly optimistic view, the church will usher in the millennial reign slowly over time, and after the, uh, the Christians have reigned for a thousand years over the earth, then Christ will return, final judgment, and that will bring about eternity. So in this view, it's called post-millennial because it says Jesus will come back after the millennium, post-millennial, all right? The next view is called premillennial. This is the view that the church age, again, from the time of the resurrection of Jesus, all the way until some unforeseen time, boom, Jesus will come back. He won't come back and make all things new immediately. He will come back and establish the earthly millennial kingdom, which will then go for a thousand years until he comes back and there's the final judgment, and then there will be eternity, all things made new. That's, the, that's called premillennialism, right? So that's, that's the historic premill position. Um, then there's a, a third view called amillennialism, which is saying that uh, it's, it's more like a metaphorical millennium than it is not a millennium. But this is saying that we're in the millennium, that the church age and the millennium are the same thing. That from the time Jesus rose from the dead until he comes back, that's the millennium. And so this is decidedly seeing the thousand years as a metaphor for like a day in the life of the Lord is like a thousand years. So that's, those are the three dominant views um, in history. Uh, and the church does not have a stated position on all three of these. So uh, we have elders and pastors who hold to at least two of those. Uh, and we probably have members who hold to all three of those. So this is a, dis on, on, this is a open-handed position on purpose, it will remain one. So even though what I'm about to teach you is the correct view, <laughs> it is open-handed. So just, just so you guys know that. Uh, I, I also want you to know that I did some podcasts about this with Luke. Uh, and I told everyone that I held the historic primo position. And as I've studied the book of Revelation and as I've read commentaries an absurd amount of time, the last three months, I've changed my view which I think at least should communicate to you how tightly I hold this stuff, right? Like, uh, I'm pretty sure Luke, at least have this, since last I checked on Thursday, was premillennial, and I'm gonna be amillennial, so Luke can't be right about everything, you know? He'll, he'll, he'll be okay. Uh, but this, this is an agree to disagree thing, but I think part of my job is to try to teach you at least 
to the best of my ability what I think this text means. But some of you will hate what I have to say about this and disagree with it, and I just wanna let you know ahead of time, I don't care because this is an open-handed issue here, and so if you're like, I really don't like that, I'm like, that's totally fine. You don't have to agree with me on this, okay? So uh, we're on the same page about how we're gonna hold this, okay? So I'm gonna do my best to tell you what I think this text means and why, and here's the other thing, is those other views, nobody holds them because they're dumb and don't have good arguments or reasons. All right, so that's just not the case. So I just don't have time to teach you all three views for forever. So I'm just gonna tell you the one I think is true and you guys can uh, care or don't care. All right, so let's go through this text. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit we heard about in Revelation chapter one. Jesus Christ is holding the key and says, I am alive forevermore. I have the key to death of ha- in Hades. That I think the key is purchased and arrived at and gained control of at the resurrection of Jesus. That the resurrection of Jesus is the moment that's being described here in Revelation 20 that Jesus holds the key to death in Hades and Jesus controls Satan, that ancient serpent who is the devil and binds him for a thousand years. And here's what I think binds mean. We'll go to a text there later. So the question of what does it mean that Satan is bound? It throws him into the pit, shuts it and seals it over him that they may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years have ended. Then he must be released for a little while. So I think that Satan is bound at the resurrection and at the end of this metaphorical thousand years, a day in the life of the Lord is like a thousand years. He'll be released and he'll wreak havoc and kind of go nuts at the end of history. Then what it says, especially into... Uh, the next text is that those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or not received the mark on their forehead and their hands um, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And you think, what does it mean that we are reigning with Christ? Um, over such a second death has no power. So the question of what does it mean that Satan is bound and what does it mean that we are presently reigning with Christ? Because last I checked, the U.S. government is not exactly aligned with Jesus. You know, or neither is Hollywood, neither is D.C., et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get to that. So I want to kind of go back and let Scripture interpret Scripture as we're trying to make sense of Revelation 20, and you can go with me there. So I'm going to talk about Revelation, or I'm going to talk about 2 Thessalonians 2, and here's what Paul writes about Satan and the work of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6. Paul says this, and you know what is restraining him, that's similar to the word bound, restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So there's a sense in which Satan is being restrained right now. It's verse seven says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's a sense in which Satan is still at work, but the one who now restrains him will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord Jesus will breathe out his mouth and bring to nothing. That's like Jesus vanquishing his enemies. Verse nine says, the coming of the lawless one is by his activity with Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders. That's what Revelation 20 describes as what will happen when Satan's let out of the pit. With all the wicked deception, those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That Paul in 2 Thessalonians is talking about, there's a sense in which Satan is still on the move, but he's also restrained, but eventually at some point he'll be unrestrained and he'll go crazy deceiving the nations even worse. So I think Paul is holding to an amillennial position in Second Thessalonians 2. Next we see this in Romans chapter 6. What does it mean to reign with Christ? Uh, Paul says this in Romans 6 verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign, that's kingdom language, in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I think that's first resurrection 
language and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. What does it mean to reign with Christ? For Paul, it means to repent of your sin. To be godly. To not sin sexually. To not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. To not commit violence and your anger. To not walk incongruent with the spirit of Christ and the fruit of the spirit. To be conformed to the image of Christ rather than conformed to the spirit of the age. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You want to reign with Christ? This is way more than politics. This is walking in holiness. Reign with God. Conquer your sin. Crucify the flesh. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can do this by the power of the spirit. Do not blame your sin on your circumstances. Do not blame your sin on your sociology. Do not blame your sin on your parents. Take responsibility for your sin and repent by the power of the spirit. Reign with Christ. This is what Paul's teaching in Romans 6 and I think it's what John is pushing us to do in Revelation 20 is reign with him. Conquer the sin that's in your life. Jesus really conquered sin and death and really holds the key that controls Satan right now and you have fellowship with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that Paul is way more optimistic about our capacity to repent of sin than we often are. We say, oh, I'm struggling, which is code for not improving. And Paul's saying, Kill your sin. Reign with God. This is what I think the the idea of being um, bound is referring to. Not that Satan is restrained in total. Not that his ability to wreak havoc is absolutely on the shelf. But that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is talking. And uh, he's going about announcing the the good news of the kingdom. And he's casting out demons. And the Jewish authorities are like, What's, what's with this guy? Why is he casting out demons? Only the Messiah can cast out demons. He's not the Messiah. It must be, he must be casting out demons using demons. And they start trying conspiracy theory their way out of believing Jesus is God. And so Jesus responds to them. And in, in Mark 3, 26 and 27, he says this. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. Meaning, you're more likely to believe that Satan is attacking himself than I am who I say I am. Who's the crazy one here? You, you people are. Here's what he says. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I have bound the strong man, that is Satan, and I am plundering his house. It's just pirate talk. Plunder. Do you ever think of yourselves as I'm plunder? I'm Jesus' booty? He stole me with his piracy out of the house of Satan. That I once belonged to the kingdom of darkness and Christ came through, kicked open the gates of hell, bound the strong man and said, repent and believe Jesus, repent and believe Seth and now I belong to Jesus. That I am plundered. That if you believe in Christ, the language here is stolen property. <laughs> You've been transferred out of the domain of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan and into the marvelous light of Jesus and you are plunder. And we are called to participate in that work. This is the mission of the church. That the gates of hell will not prevail against it and we go about plundering darkness. 
You're pirates for God. The specific domain discussed here is not saying, now that Satan's bound, no more suffering. Now that Satan's bound, no more difficulty. Now that Satan's bound, no more uh, chaos in the world. He's saying, now that Satan's bound, souls will be saved, people will be converted, people go from death to life, and people will know God when they before did not know God. And then John, who wrote John and Revelation, Jesus describing his crucifixion in John chapter 12 says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. At the first coming of Jesus, it is death and resurrection. He is binding Satan and now drawing all people to himself, saying, come to me, all who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will bring and give you rest. See, before the event of Christ, the nation's ears were closed and the Jews were walking in darkness. At the resurrection of Christ, the capacity for God's people to be a light to the nations, blessed to be a blessing, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the gates of hell will not prevail against the mission of God through his people. Now when I think about all those things, then I look back at Revelation chapter 20 and I think about what the gospels and what Paul wrote and I see this language about blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. They will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, it's hard for me not to say that that's describing the time in between the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. All right. Now again, all three of these views, we all agree on the final destination. We all agree that Jesus Christ will come back and make all things new at some point. We disagree about some of the means by which you get there, but this is one of the reasons why these are all orthodox views is because we all agree on what the final state is gonna be. We just disagree about what the journey is gonna be like to get there. It's kind of like if my wife and I were, uh, had to drive in separate cars for some reason to dinner, like, all right, let's meet there for dinner. And I said, I'm gonna go this way. And she said, I'm gonna go that way because I heard there's construction. And we get in a huge fight about which way to go when the whole point is like, we're going to dinner together. <laughs> right. uh, so the debates are the debates. Uh, and I don't want us to be divided over it, but I'm, I'm a millennial now, so there you go. Uh, fear not the feast. This feast, you don't want to be at this feast, right? The angel cries out, sees the birds. Oh, birds! Joshua Suda hates birds. Is it because of this text, you know? Saw a dead bird earlier today, and I thought, where's Joshua Suda? Gonna go scare him with this bird. But I didn't do it, you know? Angels cry out, oh, birds! Come, gather for the great supper. Feast on the flesh of kings. Flesh of horses, they're riders. Flesh of men, slave and free, small and great. Then it says the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. It says the birds are gorged with their flesh. Same with the fire. You can read about these birds and say like, is this literal eaten by the birds or metaphorical eaten by the birds? I think doesn't matter. Whole point is you don't want to be eaten by the birds. You know, I've seen enough uh, like uh, National Geographic stuff of like animals getting eaten alive to know that's gonna be a pass for me. I don't want it to go out that way. You know, eaten alive, no thanks. And here you have these birds gorging on the flesh. Like nature is wild in how merciless it can be. And here are these birds gored, eating to the point of being sick on the flesh of God's enemies. 
Now, again, you're meant to go, hmm, this is wild, don't want to be there. Uh, and this is like probably the most Darwinistic thing you get in the whole Bible. Is Jesus in John 6 says to his followers, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the people are like, whoa, pass on the cannibalism, dude. What are you talking about? That's like one of the reasons the church got persecuted in the first century is they all got, they're like, hey, these people are cannibals. They eat their leader. Like, that's wild. And you know, it's talking about communion, just to be clear, right? He's like, I'm the bread of life. My blood is shed for forgiveness of sins. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you don't have life. And here, all the people who refuse to eat Jesus' body and blood are then eaten. This is Darwinism. Eat or be eaten. There is no like, hmm, maybe I'll pick the middle way. That's not how it works. Like if you think you're picking the middle way, that you're actually picking the narrow path that leads to destruction, you're, you're picking the wide path that leads to destruction. Eat or be eaten is this a picture that not only is God just, but it's like this poetic justice. Because earlier in Revelation 11, uh, the people who hate God's uh, witnesses leave them out to like just exist dead in the streets, probably picked apart by the animals. And here, this justice is not just justice, it's poetic justice. Are you gonna leave my people out laying in the streets to be picked apart by the animals? Okay, well, you're eaten by the birds. Get what you deserve. But the picture here is not just we don't need to fear this feast, but the question is like, there's this other feast. Like, which part do you want to go to? The feast where you get eaten or the feast where you eat? That's the picture right before this, right? And so in Revelation 19, it's talking about all these people at the marriage supper of the lamb. In the, of the lamb. It says in Revelation 7, uh, Revelation 19, 7, the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Fine linen, bright and pure is the same language we see of the armies that are backing up Jesus at the first battle we talked about. It says in, in, four, in Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. That these people who are witnessing the, the being eaten of the people who have the mark of the beast, they were just at the feast of the marriage supper of the lamb they finish the marriage supper of the lamb get on their horses to ride off to battle Jesus wipes them out with the sword and the birds eat them and so there's like this do you want to be at this feast or at that feast picture and it's obvious you don't want to be at that feast you want to be at this feast so how do you how do you get there well it's these people marked in the mark of the beast who refuse to go to the marriage supper of the lamb are the ones that are eaten. And I just gotta say like, the theme in Revelation that just hits and hits and hits and hits is serve God or be destroyed. See, we like to think there's three groups of people. Oh, there's like the worshipers of God, like holy, nice, good, moral people. Then there's like, Satanists who are like the worst. There's like all these people in the middle, like neutrals, who are kind of like, oh, I'm not like a Jesus freak, but I'm also not like Hamas and Hitler. I'm like, and we think that in order to be a Satanist, you have to say like, I'm a Satanist. But what Satan, the word Satan means is, is enemy. 
to be an enemy of God, to be someone who refuses to worship Jesus. So there's really only two types of people, worshipers of Jesus and Satanists, enemies of God. And the enemies of God have a bad time in the book of Revelation, really bad time. And like someone yelling fire in a movie theater, John, through me, is saying, don't be an enemy of God. It will go bad, I promise. That you're kind of presented with, do I want to go to this feast? Feast on Jesus, marriage supper of the Lamb, body and blood of Christ? Or do I want to be the feast for the birds? Do I want to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast with God and enjoy his fellowship forever? Or do I want the fire? Because that sounds like a good time. Like there's, the paths here are pretty clear and the book of Revelation is not ambiguous about which side is the right side of history. So trust in Jesus. Feast on Christ. Reign with him, repent of your sin, honor him to the end. And if that's true, then Psalm 23 will be fulfilled in you. That even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, rather than making me afraid, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's end times language. Psalm 23 is fulfilled in Revelation 19 and 20. So we're going to-